So, um, I guess before we have about five minutes before he comes on, um, are there any questions you, we want to formulate together? To what I'm going to ask him first is just to give us an overview of his article and his thinking, and I'll also ask him how his thinking has changed over the last how long has it been? Eleven years. Eleven years. How's whether it's changed or how it's changed over the last eleven years? I'll start with that. That'll probably take ten or twenty minutes, and just let him go. Then, mashallah, when you let him go, he just goes into philosophy and tariqh. And, the, and, then, and then if you have questions. Are there any burning questions that you want me to pose? Or I can just turn it to the audience and then repeat the question to him. I, I found it interesting. In, uh, it's a wonderful article. And um, when he emphasizes the idea of disease, you know, William Osler, yeah. the idea of we need to focus on disease. And this was the big movement that happened in medicine, right? This is yeah. the big revolution. Um, and I think the issue maybe in psychiatry would be defining Disease, disease, yeah. I mean, the psychiatrists themselves are, are, have failed to really form a consensus. Yeah. Around, in terms of, I mean, what consensus? For a lot of things, yeah. Yeah. and it keeps changing well, with the DSM editions. So, my question is, is, how big of a challenge is this, and how can we overcome this challenge? Yeah. Really I can tell you, in my view, it's, it's, it's the single biggest challenge in psychiatry, and part of it is a lack of biomarkers. Uh, I think a big part of it, whether it's neuroimaging biomarkers or chemical biomarkers, and that's how we differ from the rest of medicine. All the rest of medicine, including rheumatology and so on, they have biomarkers now. Not for everything, they still use criteria, but they have biomarkers. They have anti-DNA antibodies, they have, uh, they have troponin in the heart, they have you know, uh, CRP and infections, and we don't have any, really any biomarkers. So it's all you know, criterion-based. And that's the best we've come up with in, in terms of defining our diagnosis. But you can define two people with borderline personality disorder with only one symptom overlap. Two, two people with the same disorder with only one symptom overlapping. Then you have nine cri criteria, you have to have five. Depression is the same. You can diagnose two people with depression and they overlap in only one symptom. For example, depressed mood. And then all the other symptoms are different between these two individuals. And yet they both have the same disease, depression. And so it's, it is a big problem in psychiatry. Yeah. Very low. Well, that's what they try, they've been trying to do in the DSM. And there's this whole debate about DSM versus the research domain criteria. This is the invention of Tom Insel. Tom Insel is uh, another thought leader in psychiatry. And to me, some of the big, to me, there's three major thought leaders in psychiatry today. And I'm not going to say Roger McIntyre, even though I mention him all the time, is, is someone I look up to and trained with. But Roger is mainly in mood disorders. I, when I say thought leaders across psychiatry, Nasir, to me, is one of them. Tom Insel is one of them. And the third is um, uh, Lieberman. Uh, what's his name? Uh, not Lieberman. That's uh, the congressman. Um, he's, he's the chair of psychiatry, he, chair of psychiatry at uh, Columbia. We, uh, it'll, it'll, come by, it'll come to me. But he was the president of the American Psychiatric Association. He's also one of the thought leaders of psychiatry. So uh, Nasir has called for this type of thinking for many years and I remember him standing in conferences, everyone against him and he would just stand his ground talking about these issues and now a lot of people have turned around to his point of view. So it's nine, let's see if we, he's on. Alright, so welcome Nasir. Thanks, how are you? Okay, sounds perfect. Great to see you I, and I guess I'll see you in a week inshallah. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So Ramadan Mubarak to you from, from Kuwait. Um, we have, we have many residents here in the room. I don't know if you can see all of them, but uh, we're in this co-working space in Kuwait. It's like, yes. looks like a Google lab or something. <laughs> so uh, I've already introduced Nasir. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I've already introduced Nasir. I'll, I'll give a quick introduction since um, you're here, but uh, Nasir is a professor of psychiatry at Tufts University. He also teaches at Harvard. Um, he trained in psychiatry and mood disorders in public health and in philosophy. And I was just mentioning before you came on, and, and by no means am I flattering Nasir. I think he's one of the thought leaders in our profession uh, today. I've personally learned so much from him. And I wanted to really select this article because it was seminal in my, the way I think about psychiatry and in my training. Um, so what we wanted to start off with is maybe if you, beyond, beyond that, if you can introduce yourself a little bit and where your career has arced. Um, over the last uh, not 11 years since you wrote this article and, and tell us a bit about this article and how your thoughts of, around it have evolved. And then the residents have some questions for you. So we'll leave the mic uh, open for you and I'll, I'll turn you to the room so you can maybe see the audience. Okay, thanks. Yeah. 
well, first let me thank you guys for arranging this. And uh, it's, uh, there are many harms to modern technology, but one of the benefits is that we can do something like this and I can be speaking to you in Kuwait uh, in the evening for you. So thanks for, for doing that and inviting me. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I wrote this paper, I guess 11 years seems like a long time. I wrote it partly to try to make sense for myself of um, the philosophy of psychopharmacology. In other words, uh, what kind of conceptual or, or philosophical assumptions do we have when we make decisions about prescribing medications? That was the basic question that I was asking uh, when in writing this paper. And to some extent, the first issue was, is that question worth asking? And is, is there such a thing as a philosophy of psychopharmacology? People often think about medications as being straightforward and um, as if it, it's not complicated, it's not profound, it's rather superficial. Psychotherapy is seen as complicated, profound. Prescribing medications is seen as straightforward. And I, I always had the, the feeling that there were assumptions that people had in when they prescribed medications and when they didn't, you know, whether they supported it or opposed it. So um, as I thought about it and I read about uh, different ways of thinking, I was influenced a lot in some of my um, reading of his, the history of medicine, and I came across the debates in the um, Middle Ages and into the 19th century about bleeding, about uh, bleeding, which was the most common medical treatment in general. And I found that there was generally two perspectives, one that supported bleeding a lot and the other that opposed it. And I found that the part that the group that opposed bleeding that often viewed their, their uh, saw their perspective as based on the ideas of Hippocrates. And the, and the view that supported bleeding tended to cite Galen or, or views related to Galen. So that as I read a little about Hippocrates and history medicine, I was surprised to find that Hippocrates had a lot of ideas about how we should make decisions when we treat patients with medicines. And again, it was bleeding most of the time, but they also had lots of different uh, medicines that were herbal medications or other kinds of formulations going back to ancient Greece. And I found that Hippocrates had this general philosophy that was conservative in the sense that he tended to recommend be not giving that uh, treatment frequently, um, as I laid out in the article. But he had a whole philosophy behind that. It wasn't just a general ethical perspective that you shouldn't treat people. It was a philosophy of disease that had to do with identifying diseases and treating those and being conservative with symptom treatment when you're not treating a disease. So um, as I read that, I also had read in prior years um, about the history of psychiatry in the 1960s and 1970s, that when these new medications came along, they were opposed by the majority of the psychiatric profession, most of whom were psychoanalysts. They were opposed on the grounds that the medications were superficial and symptomatic only, and they really didn't get at the cause of people's problems. So if you gave someone an antipsychotic for schizophrenia, the claim was it just makes their symptoms better, but it doesn't get at the cause of the schizophrenia. If you gave someone a, a medication for sleep or anxiety, it was the same thing. It's just treating the symptom, not getting at the cause. And the same for depression and the same for mania. Um, now, that view was rejected by the 1980s and 1990s by the, most of us in the profession. And I think I have been, been trained and raised in the profession in the view that, well, the psychoanalysts were simply wrong. They were just ideologically opposed to drugs. And in fact, these drugs really are not purely symptomatic. They get at something more meaningful, more profound. And, and the rationale for that was that when you gave, for instance, a tricyclopane present to a patient with depression, the whole depressive episode went away within a month or two. Or if you treated somebody who was psychotic with schizophrenia, a bunch of their, or most of their delusions and hallucinations went away within a few weeks of treatment. Um, and so I accepted that the effects were profound and not, not superficial. But I hadn't really understood it until I read about the history of medicine and the Hippocratic debates, that the difference was not just about being superficial versus not, it was the difference between being symptomatic and something that affects the underlying disease that causes the symptoms. And then uh, once I made that connection, I, 
and I went back essentially to my medical training, to my years of medical school, to a year of internal medicine practice when I was an intern, and realized that all of medicine is about that. It's about people coming to you with chief complaints of symptoms, and then you go through a differential diagnosis of identifying diseases, and then you treat the diseases. And I realized that that grew out of this Hippocratic history, and that it conflicts with what we did in psychiatry, especially the way DSM is set up, where we just have symptoms and we have drugs and symptoms. So that all came together in the paper. And um, I gave the paper to one of my senior uh, professors here at Harvard, Ross Baldessarini, and he had been a close mentor of mine for over a decade in residency. And he had also been one of the leaders of psychopharmacology beginning in the early 1960s, uh, when the psychopharm perspective was very radical. And I asked him what he thought, and I asked him to review the paper, he sometimes would do that for me and, and give me comments and revision. And he gave me a lot of comments, but his first reaction, his main reaction to the idea that, that a lot of our drugs actually are symptomatic and superficial and not profound or disease-modifying, he felt his initial reaction to that was um, curse word. I, I, I can't repeat it to you. He thought it was totally wrong. Um, and I was surprised that he was so reactive to it. And then I kept the paper the way it was, revised it a little, I sent it back to him again. And the second time around, he thought he was more supportive of it. And I think it actually took him a while to appreciate that what I was saying was not wrong, that it was actually right. But the fact, if it's right, then most of what we've been taught for the last 30 or 40 years in, in psychiatry about our medications is, has been wrong. We've been misleading ourselves and everybody else in the world because we believed that our drugs were special, that they weren't symptomatic and superficial. In retrospect, I think the psychoanalysts were right. I think their criticism was right. The drugs are superficial. But I don't, I don't agree with their conclusions, which is that we shouldn't use the drugs at all and we should give people psychoanalysis. But I think their observation was correct. The drugs actually are not getting at something deeper or profound. Now they, they draw those conclusions, they drew those conclusions for the wrong reasons. They drew it based on psychoanalytic theory. It's actually taken us 30 or 40 years to find out that's true, that the drugs actually don't have profound disease-modifying effects. And that's based on 30 or 40 years of biological research, pathophysiology research, that shows that the drugs really aren't getting into pathophysiology of the diseases. Let me just pause and explain this for you briefly. There's two ways to figure out if a drug, and, and so this is actually, actually now let me just finish, segue. That's what I was thinking 10 years ago, 11 years ago. What's happened in the last 10 years is it's become more clear to me that the distinction is not just between symptomatic or not, it's between symptomatic and disease modifying. And um, it's also become more clear to me that that's actually the distinction that all of medicine uses except psychiatry. It is a distinction that's very routine in the pharmaceutical industry where I'm doing research now, for instance. Every drug that comes along, the first question you ask is, is it a symptomatic drug or is it a disease-modifying drug? Not that one's good or bad, you just want to know what you're doing. And then the classic clinical example is a symptomatic drug is aspirin or Tylenol for a fever. Disease-modifying drug is penicillin or the pneumonia that causes the fever. Penicillin doesn't reduce the fever directly, but it reduces the cost. So, um, and the symptomatic treatments are short-term, the disease-modifying treatments may be longer. So over the last 10 years, I've, I made that distinction, and then it's become more clear to me what it means to be disease-modifying. Let me explain this in two ways. This is not in the paper. One is clinical, and the other is biological. The clinical definition of a disease-modifying medication is that the disease symptoms may or may not go away, but over time, the disease itself goes away. In other words, the symptoms may be present now, but they're not present in the future. They gradually get better. Or if the symptom, if the illness is episodic, the symptoms now, you know, you may or may not improve it, but if you take the medication, you prevent the episodes in the future. They don't come back. So it's, it's a long-term course effect. That's how you know a drug is disease-modifying. It improves the long-term course. Not the current symptoms, but the long-term course. And it, it's interesting that that's exactly what, how Kreptum defined diseases, of course. The, that's the clinical definition. The, the biological definition is 
let's assume that scientists do a bunch of research on schizophrenia, bipolar, depressive illnesses, and they find that the pathophysiology of these diseases involves X, Y, or Z. You know, that the pathophysiology involves genetic abnormality of circadian rhythms that then leads to altered sleep patterns, let's say. So the disease-modifying drug is a drug that affects those mechanisms. Say it improves the circadian rhythms or it improves uh, the, um, the, uh, the, say, the, the circuits that are involved with the drug, um, with, the, with the disease. And another way of thinking about the pathophysiology is, generally speaking, there's been a lot of evidence now that uh, various psychiatric illnesses have harmful effects neurobiologically. So for instance, you get ventricular atrophy, ventricular expansion and schizophrenia because of cortical atrophy around the ventricles. You get hippocampal atrophy and depression. And you have amygdala enlargement and maintenance. So there are various biological changes that have been proven now with 20, 30 years of research with these, these diseases. If a drug is disease-modifying, it should reverse those biological changes, right? And at the very least, it shouldn't worsen those biological changes, but ideally it should improve them. And so that's how I've figured, I've, I've been thinking more about whether our drugs are disease-modifying. And so if you ask the question, do antidepressants and antipsychotics and anxiolytics and amphetamine stimulants, do they improve the course of illness of the conditions for which they're used? The answer is no. So that's, that's they're not disease modifying in that sense. And the evidence for that answer involves looking at the long-term maintenance clinical trials and seeing if you have an improved course. You can look at the literature I, and I have and I find that they don't. If you ask the question, do those medications improve the pathophysiology, the known pathophysiology of the various conditions? Basically, the answer is no. They don't actually affect the known pathophysiology of those conditions. Of course, there may be pathophysiology that's unknown, that we'll find out, that maybe they do affect, but as of what we know now, I can't say that it's proven that they do. And then thirdly, you can ask the question, do they improve uh, the neurobiological consequences of those conditions, such as decreasing the cerebral atrophy, things like that? And the answer is no, they don't. Contrary to many people's opinions to the contrary, if you look at the literature in human beings, not animals, which is a different issue, they don't. Uh, for instance, antipsychotics and schizophrenia have been shown to cause more cerebral atrophy over time, not less. So um, the only drugs, actually, that do seem to affect the pathophysiology of the disease, that do improve the course of the illness, and that do reverse the neurobiological atrophy and worsening of the brain status with these diseases, with the various diseases, the only drugs that do that are these so-called mood stabilizers, specifically lithium, most specifically lithium. But to some extent, the Motrogene, maybe Valproate, Carbamazepine, that's it. So my view on this is that in psychiatry, all of our drugs are symptomatic, not disease-modifying, short-term in benefit, if at all, uh, except lithium, maybe Motrogene and some DNA compulsions. And those are the only disease-modifying drugs. So that's that. a lot of the recent ideas that I just described I've summarized in my new textbook. Uh, so I just published a psychopharmacology textbook a few months ago with Oxford Press. There's a chapter in there on Hippocratic psychopharmacology. That's kind of the core philosophy of the textbook. And um, there is also the, the, a lot of discussion of the clinical research evidence and some of the biological evidence for why some of these drugs are not disease modifying some of them are. So that's my summary. Okay. We can have a sure. So thank you for the summary. If, if the audience will allow me, I'll uh, segue on that. So I, I mentioned to the audience that I spent uh, about two months with you over a summer uh, where I uh, not only worked with you in clinic, but spent a lot of time after clinic just absorbing a lot of information. But I remember one of the experiences from clinic is that you actually walk your talk. I. Um, there's one thing I learned was sometimes minimizing drugs. I remember Nasir, um, and again, I mean, this is well known about him, but for those who haven't met him, people are waiting for months to see him from all over the United States and the world, and we'd have patients flying in from Saudi Arabia and all over the world to come and see him. And I, I remember clearly once a patient had been waiting a long time to see him with bipolar disorder on multiple medications, and, you know, 
Nasir took a very calm history and you know, um, very organized. And then at the end he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop, the person was on an antidepressant, I, let's just say Prozac, I can't remember which one. And he said, let's, let's, uh, what I want you to do is stop Prozac. And the patient was waiting for the next step. And, and Nasir said, that's it. <laughs> he said, well, I've been, I've been waiting to see you because the patient was on lithium or, or, or Lamictal or, or one of these medications. He said, I just want you to stop Prozac and I'll see you in a month. And he said, but I've been waiting for this point before. You're not going to add a medication? He said, no. And, and in my head, I thought, this is crazy. I mean, in, in my mind, I mean, this person's suffering. You should be doing something. The patient left and I asked him, what? And he said, I am doing something. We're stopping a medication that's making him worse. Now, I didn't really buy it, but a, a month later, the patient comes back and he's better. Um, and so that's something I've really taken into account in my own practice. These are not just theories that you can actually apply this and it works. And I still do this today. I mean, more often than not, people come to me in my practice on six medications and you get them down to four or three or even two and they're doing much better. Um, so less is sometimes more in psychopharmacology and I think in medicine in general and the groundwork is laid out for that. And I think uh, what I hope that residents come out with in this um, in this presentation is that it's not just something we want to talk about, but we want to try and walk as well. Um, if I can start off with the first question, then I'll open up to the floor, is um, what's always struck me about you, Nasir, is that you're able to balance this you know, thought and still give lectures all around the world, collaborate with, uh, with the pharma industry, now do research with the pharma industry, and also treat patients. Um, and yet hold your own with these views. And can you tell us a little bit how you navigate these, these dilemmas? I won't call them ethical dilemmas because they're not really, they're more kind of intellectual dilemmas. Um, okay, uh, thanks for the question. Um, I think if I understand correctly, and basically um, the way that the approach I take is more or less just to have to, to get to a, a viewpoint that I think is right, and then to hold that viewpoint and present it, um, irrespective of the consequences, and irrespective of my audience. Uh, so everybody gets the same, same opinion from me, whether it's me and you talking alone, or me and a patient, or me in an academic center, or me in a pharmaceutical sec setting. Uh, I say the same thing everywhere. Um, and um, even if it's unpopular, it, I honestly don't care. I just give my view. I think it's, for me, it's as simple as yeah. that. Okay. And then just to segue a little bit more is, do you, do you see anything on the horizon, um, whether it's the rapidly acting, the so-called rapidly acting antidepressants or anything beyond that, that could possibly be more disease modifying options beyond lithium and, and its uh, cousins? Well, so the, the ketamine-like rapidly acting antidepressants are, by definition, they're not disease-modifying mm -hmm. because they're rapidly acting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not the way you treat diseases. I mean, you don't go to a doctor and he immediately cures your cancer. Yeah. You don't go to a doctor with a pneumonia and by the time you leave the office, you feel great. That's yeah. not the way diseases are treated. Diseases at least take some time in work because that's the way the body is. You have to fix the body. So all you're doing with ketamine and the rapidly acting drugs is making the symptoms better more quickly. To me, that's nothing new, nothing really interesting. You know, it's, that's not our problem. I always tell people our problem is not that it takes a few weeks for the drugs to work and we need to make them work in a couple days. That's not the issue uh, for most people. I understand that there's the occasional suicidal person who actually makes a difference. That's why we've always had ACT and that's a rationale for ECT too. But, you know, we've had an ECT for 70, 80 years. That doesn't solve the bigger picture problem, which is that we aren't getting into the disease process that's causing the symptoms to begin with. And that doesn't change with the um, rapidly acting antidepressants. Okay. In terms of what could do that, it would be lithium-like drugs, drugs which affect the, the mechanisms involved. And, and it's going to be different for different diseases. So the mechanism for manic illness is going to be different than the mechanism for schizophrenia. Um, and you also have to have a disease. You, you, you're not going to find a disease-modifying drug for a problem that's not a disease. Mm. So, for instance, um, anxiety symptoms are not diseases. Anxiety is like the fever of psychiatry. It's mm. the consequence of lots of different causes. Mm -hmm. So there's never going to be a cure for anxiety, just like there's no cure for fever. Uh, you have to get at the cause of it. Mm. Uh, 
Um, same thing with depression. Depression is not a disease. It's a syndrome that's caused by different kinds of causes, some of which are diseases like manic depressive illness. Um, schizophrenia is a disease. In my view, there's only five or six diseases in psychiatry. Manic depressive illness, schizophrenia, OCD, autism, maybe a couple other things. But the rest of our presentations of patients' problems are just symptoms. And the, you can manage the symptoms maybe with some drugs, but that's not a cure and it's not a long-term treatment. And that's where psychotherapy comes in. Psychotherapy is important for a lot of those presentations of patients, as well as social interventions mm. are important okay. um, for a lot of the anxiety and, and, and insomnia and depressive symptoms that people have. They're not disease processes at all. So I think you know there might be drugs in the future that are lithium-like that might become disease-like uh, cures for manic depressive illness. There might be drugs that might improve schizophrenia, which then would then be disease modifying, but there's nothing on the horizon um, that we know of, in my opinion. Most of the treatments, almost all, have always been and continue to be symptomatic, which means that we're just going to run in place in our profession. We're not going to have any major progress at all. Uh, until we define disease better, you think? Smile on <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, until we find disease-modifying drugs, and we're not going to find disease-modifying drugs if we don't do two things. Number one is be very clear what our diseases are and mm -hmm. what are not diseases. And that's where DSM is a huge problem because mm -hmm. it lists three, 400 things which are not diseases, yeah. and it misleads the whole profession. Yeah. Second thing is we actually have to seek disease-modifying drugs, and the academic um, researchers have not been doing that because they don't even think about this. They think that the symptomatic treatments are fine. And the, um, the pharmaceutical companies have not been doing it, partly because they follow the lead of the academic researchers, and they don't realize there's a problem not in psychiatry. You know, the, the analogy is, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, for instance, and I've learned a lot about it because I've been doing research with Novartis for the last year here in Cambridge. They do a lot of work in multiple sclerosis, for instance. And, and if you look at other diseases like multiple sclerosis, over the last decade, they've developed drugs which prevent episodes of MS. They're actually called disease-modifying therapies, mm -hmm. DMTs. That's actually the name of the drug. Yeah. Um, and that's been a huge progress in multiple sclerosis because before, the only treatment you had was steroids for the exacerbation. Yeah. So, you know, when 10 or 20 years ago, when I was a resident, if you had a patient with MS, you gave them steroids, and then when they their exacerbation was better, you just sent them home and you hoped that they did, did okay. There was nothing you could give them in between the episodes to decrease the frequency or severity of exacerbations. Now, the pharmaceutical industry is focused on that and has prepared, created drugs that do that. In psychiatry, essentially, all of our antidepressants are steroids. <laughs> all of our antipsychotics are steroids. Yeah. All we do is get better and better steroids, and people aren't working on treatments that prevent the future episodes or that prevent the symptoms from coming back in the future. So we, if people don't work on it, we're not going to have progress. And that's one of the things I'm trying to do myself is to try to steer some of the research in that direction here. Um, but uh, and, I, and my, the reason I'm doing it is because my I've come to the conclusion after 25 years or so of being in the field that exhortation and preaching about it and teaching about it only goes so far. People, people haven't made the, don't make the move because the perspective that I'm presenting is such a minority view. Um, but I think that if, if some of us are able to actually do this and show how to do it and get it done, then other people might follow suit. There might be, uh, there might be some, um, some uh, copying of, of this process, and that might be a way forward. I think that's what we need. Thank you so much. I think this is a good overview. We have about 20 to 25 minutes. I promised this year we'd finish by 45 for questions. So that's a good amount of time. I think Dr. Ibrahim has a question. And if you can't hear it, I'll repeat it. So yeah, so I'll okay. try to raise my voice. Um, so thank you for the, for the wonderful talk. Can you hear it? You, you, uh, yeah, okay. you mentioned in your article that a medicine should always be presumed to be hurtful. You quoted uh, Oliver Holmes in the, the journal article. And, and I wonder how, we, I mean, you draw some interesting uh, correlations between internal medicine and psychiatry. I mean, even internal medicine, a lot of what they do is patching up the patients, right? I mean, 
we wait for someone to have chest pain, and there's not enough emphasis on primary prevention. So my question is, we're, we're mainly, are we mainly focusing on secondary prevention here? Should we have a focus on primary prevention of many of these um, psychiatric illnesses? And does this change the scope of, of, of maybe our approach to psychiatry? And my second question, if I can ask that, have your thoughts on biological psychiatry changed uh, after discovering the non-disease model of psychopharmacology? Yeah, I think um, we do, we should, we, primary prevention is important, and so is secondary prevention. I don't think it's an either-or question. I think they both are important. I think in general in psychiatry, we don't pay enough attention to prevention, and that's a public health perspective, of course, and that's something I learned only after studying public health. Um, but I think one of the issues we have is that the, the public, people who know about the public health perspective tend to think about non-biological or non-pharmacological prevention, which is fine, but I think what we are missing is that the, our pharmacology should actually move toward prevention as well. Um, secondly, in, in, on your second point, um, uh, I do, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of me as someone who supports biological psychiatry. I, I sort of thought of myself that way too. Um, but I don't support biological psychiatry in the sense of the non-Hippocratic symptomatic approach to treatment. Um, I also don't support non-biological psychiatry in the non-Hippocratic, non-symptomatic approach to treatment. Because, you know, you can do psychotherapy that way too. I mean, it's, it's okay, I guess. Psychotherapy is less harmful than drugs. Um, but I just think that if, if it's important to make the distinction if someone has symptoms or, or a disease. If they have symptoms but they don't have a disease, then even the psychotherapy approach to that person would be different mm. than, if, than if they did have a disease. Um, so I don't, I suppose you, I, I, I suppose you could say, I guess my, my, my hesitation here is, I think my problem is that I think that biological psychiatry, as it's been conceived, has been this non-Hippocratic symptom-based approach. And I just, I don't support that. Um, but I don't think that should be this, what biological psychiatry is. Other questions? Yeah? Uh, with psychedelics, like the side that have that ability to be disease-curing? Uh, did you hear that, Nasir? Should I repeat? No, uh, the question was, uh, can psychedelics possibly be uh, disease-curing or disease-modifying? Um, well, what do you think? If they work quickly, yeah. or they can be disease-curing or modifying? So, I, I mean, my, my personal opinion, I'm, I'm interested in this, is that um, psilocybin specifically seems to have a rapid effect, and then, then there's a slower effect, which is, I mean, some of those Harvard trials where they looked at uh, changing personality structure or changing openness to experience um, after a single high dose of psilocybin. But I'm not, I mean, personally, I'm not sure if it's the, the high dose psilocybin or the psilocybin lowering ego defenses and then the way they structure those Hopkins and Harvard trials is that there's their gui guides in this shamanic kind of tradition, but with psychologists being the shamans and guiding the person through the experience and talking them through and, and so on. Is it, is it that that made the difference, or is it the, the drug itself, or is it both? I'm not sure. Um, so I'd love to hear well, your I mean, thoughts. I think I've laid out how you would answer the question. You'd have to show that the drugs improve the course of the illness by preventing episodes or making the symptoms go away gradually over time and not come back. That's certainly never been shown with psilocybin, and neither has it been shown with ketamine. Hmm. And or you'd have to show that it improves the actual pathophysiology of the disease process. Um, so, for instance, you have to show that psilocybin decreases hippocampal atrophy or something like that, uh, or that it gets at whatever the process might be. In the case of manic depressive disease, for instance, recurrent severe depression, we believe that second messengers are involved and G proteins and so on are involved. You'd have to show that it affects them, which as far as I know, it doesn't. So. Um, I think that the evidence is there that it's not disease modifying. If I can add one more thing as a, just a, co a comment, I, I think it's really un unfortunate that humanity is seeking these, these easy cures. We've been doing that for 2,000 years and it's never worked and I don't think it ever will. <laughs> I don't know why we need to keep doing it over and over again.
can you hear or should I repeat once uh, Dr. Amar? No, okay, yeah, so yeah, I'll repeat. Hey. Okay, so, so uh, let me see if I formulate this correctly. So the, the question in summary is, um, by, treat, by using a symptomatic treatment approach, which is in so sometimes the best we have today, aren't we still practicing a Hippocratic psychopharmacology because some of these symptoms can actually harm the patient? I, I would probably use the example of... Uh, but yeah, it would prevent, maybe if you stay on the medication, it prevents relapse or prevents symptoms that are very harmful like suicide or, or harm to others. And by that, isn't that a, a Hippocratic psychopharmacology? Is that right? The way, yeah. Well, it's not Hippocratic. You might you could claim that it's ethical, but it's not Hippocratic because they're not the same thing. Hippocrates had a certain philosophy, and that's not his philosophy. His philosophy was that if you engage in symptomatic treatment in general, overall the harms would outweigh the benefits. This doesn't mean that there aren't any benefits but the, the harms would outweigh them. Because the drugs all have harms and side effects too. Um, generally speaking, if your benefit is stronger short-term and your treatment is given short-term, then, then the benefits might outweigh the harms. So if you have somebody who's highly suicidal and you give them ECT for symptomatic treatment of suicide or whatever, um, and their suicidality gets better, and then you stop the treatment one week later, then, then yeah, that's, that's consistent with the Hippocratic approach. But if you continue the treatment for months and months and years and years, and then they develop breast cancer because of the SRI, then maybe that was not a benefit to them. Mm. Um, SRIs are associated with carcinogenicity, according to some studies. You know, that's the kind of harm that you have to be aware of. Um, so uh, I think that's one issue. The other is, um, in general, um, the, for instance, reducing the symptoms does not reduce the relapse rate. Mm. So the claim that you help them is just an unfounded claim. What's the scientific evidence that reducing the symptoms reduces the relapse rate? For say depressant. Yeah, I, I, probably. I, yeah, so so the studies that if you stay on an antidepressant is that yeah. Right. So Dr. Amar is saying there are studies that, uh, and I'll, I'll add to what he's saying, he's saying there are some studies that show antidepressants um, improve neuroplasticity or uh, pre prevent, uh, prevent neuron loss, and then the, the other part is uh, studies that show if you stay on an antidepressant, you'll have less relapses, especially after you've had one relapse. So, so relapse prevention studies and then neuro, neuro, neurogenesis, I guess, studies. So I refer you to my textbook where I go through the details on how those studies are wrong. Um, firstly, on the neuroplasticity, most of the studies are in animals, mostly in rats. When you get to monkeys and primates, it's, there's, not, there's evidence that the antidepressants are not neuroplastic very often. When you get to humans, there's also much less evidence that they're neuroplastic. In other words, there are studies that show that they're not. Some studies show that they may be, and other studies show that they're not. And that's in contrast to the lithium data, which are consistently positive for neuroplasticity. So um, it's not true that the antidepressants are neuroplastic in general, like it's, as it's a proven thing. There's actually a good deal of evidence that they're not, especially in humans. They may be in rats, so you can give the rats all the antidepressants you like <laughs> for their entire lives, but, that's a, but not in humans. And secondly, regarding prevention of depressive episodes, it's actually disproven. It's a very common but false belief uh, and the reason for that has to do with various aspects of the way the trials are done. Just to put it briefly, but again, I have to refer you to the textbook because I can't explain all this in a minute or two. Um, but I've, I've written some papers on it as well. But a lot of these studies are enriched studies, so-called randomized discontinuation trials, where patients are pre-selected to be antidepressant responders, and only the responders are included in the study. Those who do not respond to the antidepressant are not included in the study. And then they say that it helps them. Well, that's like saying, if you like chocolate cake, I'm going to put you in a study of chocolate cake. But if you don't like chocolate cake, you can't be in my study of chocolate cake. <laughs> and you know what? Chocolate cake, everybody likes chocolate cake. That's what my study finds, by excluding the people that don't like chocolate cake. I refer you to the, to the studies. And if you also look at the FDA database on maintenance studies, and I have the picture in the textbook, they prove that the antidepressants have no benefit beyond six months. 
in so-called major depressive disorder. After six months, they're equivalent to placebo. So there's no long-term prevention benefit at all. And that's what I'm saying. I just presented you the conclusions of my views, but um, the evidence on which they're based is mostly unknown to most of our profession, and most of our profession has been miseducated falsely to believe the opposite of that evidence. This is a classic example. Um, maybe, well, if there's anyone else that has a question, I have a quick segue. I know the answer to this because I've spent a lot of time around you, but uh, I think people might pick up on the fact that you say manic depressive illness and not bipolar, and that you, mm -hmm. you know, when you refer to major depression, you say so-called major depression. And I know those two, right. po those two points are linked, the, the fact that you call it manic depressive illness and so-called major depression, but I think most of the audience don't know why you say that, so maybe a little brief on right. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll thank you for the opportunity to comment on that. Yeah. Um, I hope I don't scare them too much. <laughs> so you may have to stop the video. Um, so I don't believe major depression, quote unquote, is a valid concept at all. By valid, I mean scientifically legitimate as being a real thing. It's not. There's a long history to that. I keep, I'm sorry I keep repeating about the textbook, but the reason I wrote the thing was because I say the same thing over and over again, and it requires a lot of, of description. You know, it's, it's it's sort of like I feel in a way like um, imagine if if you were um, describing a new um, a, a new way of thinking. Say you were say you were we were talking about psychoanalysis in 1915, and nobody had ever heard of it before. When you start describing the ideas, people can't relate to it because they just haven't heard the ideas before. So I, I apologize that I keep saying that there's going to have, if you really want to get into it, you really have to read a little more about the background. And that's why I've, I've tried to write it. But basically, major depression is not legitimate. It was made up in 1980 by the DSM-3 committee. Uh, it didn't exist in human history before then. It, there were different definitions or concepts of depression. One of which was manic depressive illness, which meant recurrent mood episodes of any kind. It was not based on being manic at all. You could just have depressive episodes and you had manic depressive illness. So it really means manic or depressive episodes, not manic and depressive episodes. That was Kreplin's view and that was the view of the whole profession from the 1890s until 1980, SM3. My view is that the research literature since the 1980s has confirmed Kreplin's view more than the DSM view and that the recurrent mood disease where you can have depressive or manic episodes is one disease, it's not two. And that, uh, that quote-unquote major depression, the way it's defined in DSM, is not one condition at all, but rather it's many different kinds of depressive states. One big group of which is this recurrent mood disease that used to be called manic depressive illness. And then there's neurotic depression, which is another kind of depressive state that isn't manic depressive uh, and is much less severe. And there's one or two others that I've written about. So I say so-called major depression, quote unquote, when I have to use the phrase to 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 allude to the view that 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 term actually is not a scientifically legitimate term by view. And I prefer the term manic depressive to the word bipolar because the term bipolar implies a much smaller group of people who have manic and depressive states, whereas manic depressive illness refers to what used to be called unipolar depression as well. People who have just recurrent depression. And that's the same illness as the people we call bipolar. Um, so there's you know, obviously a lot of complexity to that, and you have to throw out DSM and um, deny everything that you're taught in DSM to accept these views or to understand them. Um, but I think um, that's the view that I hold. I think the science supports it. And that's why one reason I think that DSM itself is a huge obstacle to progress in psychiatry, and that we need to put it aside and think outside of the DSM definitions both for research and for practice. Any other questions in the last few minutes? Um, so uh, I'll, maybe I'll conclude with two questions. Uh, one, why is it that you think that people don't use lithium as much as, we, as you would preach or as, I, th I mean, is, is it just because it's not marketed or are there other reasons? Um, and the second is uh, in, in your, in your work with uh, Novartis over the last year, and I'm, I'm sure there's some things you can talk about, some things you can't, but do you see hope that uh, industry is going to kind of move towards a non-DSM thinking? Is, it, is research domain criteria the way forward, or is there another way forward in terms of 
uh, progressing in, in uh, coming up with diagnoses and treatments. So first on lithium and then uh, progress on diagnosis yeah. and treatment. Yeah. So I, th I think part of the reason people don't use lithium enough is because they don't make the distinction between symptomatic and disease-modifying drugs. If they did, and they realized that symptomatic drugs have only short-term, really mainly short-term benefits and shouldn't be used long-term, uh, and that disease-modifying drugs have a lot of long-term benefits even if they don't have it short-term, and that the side effects are outweighed by all the benefits for the disease-modifying drugs like lithium, whereas the side effects often are not outweighed with symptomatic drugs like SRIs. If people made that distinction, they would use lithium more. But since people don't, they think they're all the same, they're all equally good, which isn't true. And then they just say, oh, lithium has more side effects, they don't give it. It's a um, very scientifically um, weak way of thinking. Um, on the other point, um, my, part of the reason that I started to, what I do is I lead early drug development research in psychiatry now in Novartis and Cambridge. I'm the only psychiatrist here among a bunch of, a lot of neurologists and neuroscientists. And as you know, most pharmaceutical companies have gotten out of psychiatric research in recent years, mainly because they spent 20 years developing all these symptomatic drugs, making all these profits, and then the drugs became generic, and now it's hard to prevent, to develop even more symptomatic drugs. I mean. All they can do is say, hey, this one works faster, use this now instead. Um, they really don't have anything to offer. Um, and so most of them have been getting out. Um, here, Novartis has actually not been in psychiatry for the last 20 or 30 years. The, only, the last drug it developed was Clozapine in 1988. So it's been away from psychiatry and it's therefore has the benefit of not being tied to a lot of the, the assumptions and the practices of our field. So when, when I was recruited to consider coming here, I told them that I would, what I wanted to do is what I've described to you, is not do symptomatic treatment, but to look at disease-modifying treatment. And they said, oh, that's what we do anyway. That's what we've been doing with multiple sclerosis and with all kinds of conditions. So the nice thing is they're already bought into this philosophy. You know, everything that we've talked about for the last 45 years is extremely revolutionary for the profession of psychiatry today, but it is ho-hum and average thinking in the pharmaceutical companies sometimes, like Novartis, and in most of the rest of medicine. The problem is that psychiatry is messed up, and our profession is really screwed up, and we don't realize <laughs> that. Whereas uh, the rest of medicine, you know, is not messed up in the same way, and we have, it's, just, it's really not a hard thing. We're not really that revolutionary. You just have to kind of go back to being a doctor and thinking like a physician and not uh, just accepting the status quo of our field. But, so, it hasn't been hard to convince people that this is the way we should be thinking here. The, the biggest obstacle we have, I would say, is once you get to the later stages of development, when you get to phase three trials and into the market, you have to get a registration approval from the FDA, Food and Drug Administration in the US, and uh, European regulators. And they do still use the DSM definitions mm. as their main standard. So I think for the foreseeable future, probably the, the approach that I've taken so far, and I'm gonna talk about this at the APA meeting next week, is that we have to take our, 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 our novel approach, our, our revolutionary approach of looking at non-DSM concepts, but then we need to translate them in some way for the regulators for DSM concepts for now, until we can convince the field that we can get rid of the DSM concepts entirely. Um, because the FDA is, a lot of people like to blame the FDA. Um, so there's three big players. There's academia, academia and clinicians, the FDA or the government, and then the pharmaceutical companies. A lot of people like to blame the FDA or the pharmaceutical companies for being the problem. But, uh, you know, on this issue, for instance, like the academics blame the companies and the companies blame the FDA. Well, the FDA is really not the problem because the FDA ultimately does what the clinical consensus of the profession is. Mm. So the F, what the FDA says, the only reason they use DSM definitions is not because the FDA believes in DSM definitions. It's because the FDA thinks that the psychiatric community believes in mm. DSM definitions. If the psychiatric community changed its view, then the FDA would change its view as well. Mm. So that's why it's important to have these discussions and you know to have this kind of teaching You know that maybe you guys in the room there in Kuwait can be the nucleus of a change in the profession. Because if you don't change it, they won't change. And on the R RDOC, the research domain criteria, 
as you probably know, the NIMH has rejected DSM criteria, and that's that's for the reasons I gave, which is great. And they have suggested the RDOC as an alternative. Um, my view is that um, they should not suggest just one alternative, but that there should be many different alternatives that people can study and use. Um, and that's that's my main critique of the RDOC. And, I, and the other aspect of that is the RDOC is limited to biological, biologically based research, biologically based definitions like um, neuroimaging and such. Whereas I think we should still accept clinically based definitions, um, even though they should be non-DSM based, but clinically based with a research um, evidence that's strong in clinical research. I think that's acceptable, whereas the RDOC has, rejects that. So that's some of my differences with RDOC, and I, I don't think that that's a solution for those reasons. Okay. Um, so I know it's 2.45, but there's one final question. Do you have time to take one more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. My time's fine. Okay. Uh, what do you think about some locally generated uh, uh, alternatives to the DSM? Examples that were done in France and, and in other countries. Do you think that uh, more countries should, should start creating their own diagnostic criteria that are culturally sensitive? Yeah, I heard that. You know, here's the way I would put it, and I say this to you guys as a, um, I think Muhammad may have told you I'm Iranian myself, you know, grew, up, grew up in the U.S., uh, and I'm Muslim as well, so I think it's just incredible, truly incredible, that rural psychiatry has been reduced to American psychiatry. And not, the Europeans, at the very least, should have resisted, and they, have, they have always have had their own tradition of psychiatry. And they do resist to some extent, Germans and French, you know, they have their own way of thinking. But it's really shocking to me that, yes, this one, which was created by the American Psychiatric Association for American Psychiatry, has now become an international standard by which all psychiatrists think they should practice. I think that not, an American psychiatrist should not practice that way. But it, it, it <laughs> bothers me that psychiatrists outside the U.S. accept it as they do. It, it's a true example of cultural imperialism in its worst way. Wow. And you know, and if we if we argue with America about politics and religion and music and other things, why do we suddenly accept all the DSM? Yeah. It's, it's really no different. It's another cultural construct. It's a social construct made up by the profession. It's made up for the American system, for American psychiatrists practicing in the US in the American cultural setting. It's not at all relevant, even to Canada, much less Kuwait <laughs> and Iran and Taiwan. It's, it's really ridiculous to me. So the answer to your question obviously is yes, <laughs> but I think you should do it not in the sense of, okay, DSM is fine, here's our, our, culturally, our cultural adaptation. You should say, you know, forget DSM. This is what we think about psychiatry in general. But of course, as culturally adapted to Kuwait and Middle East and Muslims and so on, it's going to have its own uniqueness. But I, I really think we need to begin by saying there's that the understanding that DSM is an American cultural phenomenon, mm -hmm. and it is it's not a scientifically proven uh, or scientifically legitimate construct that has general validity. And as you said, NIMH admitted that a few years ago. So we should all admit that and move on. Actually, I have one final question because it's, <laughs> it's Ramadan in Kuwait, uh, well, worldwide. And uh, what I've noticed ever since moving back six years ago is that everyone who has bi bipolar or manic depressive illness relapses in Ramadan. Not everyone, but m many of my patients. Um, I, spent, yeah, I spent all of Ramadan dealing with uh, mania relapses, depression relapses in, in manic depressive illness. And uh, mm -hmm. I... I always pegged it to that it's circadian rhythm shifts because most uh, Muslims will change their sleeping yeah. habits. But I'm increasingly right. convinced that it's not just that, that uh, changes in other biological rhythms such as eating, uh, eating times and, and timing of meals may uh, have something to do with this. But I don't know if there's any research that backs this up. And you, you've read widely. Would there anything, uh, have you read it, come across anything that backs this up, that it could be not just sleep? But that, that eating patterns would affect relapse rates? Yeah, so you know, I, I'm thinking of uh, how, how food intake is related to circadian rhythm. It's not just sleep. Yeah. Well, I, so obviously the circadian rhythm, Mohammed, obviously the circadian rhythm aspect jumps to mind. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if anyone's published on this, but even if they have, I would urge you to publish something on this. Yeah. Get the idea out there. 
yeah. and also if you have any data to put the data out there. You know that the prophet said that uh, anyone who has an illness does not have to fast or right. Yeah. Any illness that can be, most people think about diabetes and things like that. Yeah. But if you can show that manic depressive illness worsens with Ramadan, then at least as people with severe versions of that illness should be excused. That would yeah. be a rationale for them to be excused from right. the fasting. Uh, I, my hunch is it's, and then you could you could look at the the causation, the circadian, the sleep patterns, of course, is key. Um, you know, if I had to speculate, you, you probably know there's this literature on high carbohydrate mm. diets and how that can cause depression. Yeah. There's a little literature on that. I don't know if that would be relevant. Um, it depends on, you know, again, it depends on what people eat when they, but, but it's probably, in many cases, a lot of carbohydrate loading. I don't know how you could control for that. You could mm. probably take, um, do a randomized trial yeah. and have one group of people, uh, you know, eat a lot, eat like they normally would, but to have the other group of people have a restricted diet, mm. but otherwise the circadian rhythms would be the same, and mm. then you could see if that would make a difference potentially. Okay. That'd be an interesting study. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I know your time is very valuable, and thank you for giving us some of your time. Uh, for, and for those uh, of you who go to APA, uh, I know a lot of people aren't coming this year. I'll, I'll be there, inshallah, but uh, I know a lot of people won't come this year because it's Ramadan. But for anyone who's coming to the APA in the future, Nasir is almost always there, almost always um, gives great talks. The other conference where I see him a lot is the International Society uh, for Bipolar Disorders, where last uh, year he gave the keynote lecture, which was fantastic. I mean, it just left... Uh, you know what talk's fantastic? When you see half the room scratching their heads after the, after the talk. Uh, just kind of mulling over what you said. This was the Mexico City talk. Um, so uh, thank you so much for joining us. I, I know a lot of people uh, are going to be thinking about what you said and debating it and reading the textbook and reading some of your other articles. And that's what we want to happen. Um, so, so thank you so much. You're well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, um and you, to the audience, you guys are in great hands with Muhammad, which is uh, <laughs> really, really important for our profession. Hopefully, will will continue to lead us in a better direction. And Thank Muhammad, you. I trust you will you will pick up the pieces, the broken pieces. That you're <laughs> behind uh, I, I hoped, or, or or leaving them a little bit broken is good because you know <laughs> you taught me that. So, all, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Salam alaikum. All right, so, uh, so we have the room till 10. We have five minutes left. Um, I'm not g really going to comment. I think maybe if we go slightly over time, I would really open up the floor to discussion amongst ourselves rather than with me. I, I can just moderate the discussion if you like because I think he said some points that leave you scratching your head. And that's, that's what I love about Nasir. I, I mean, it's very easy to just kind of accept except all the time. And I like every once in a while being around someone that makes you just question the whole foundations of what you believe. Um, I remember once, I'll tell you a little, another story about Nasir. Is after I spent two months with him, I went back to Toronto. I had this tough bipolar uh, patient who tried multiple medications with. She wasn't responding. And uh, I got her on lithium. She had a partial, partial response. I avoided antidepressants, just like he had taught me. Trial after trial after trial after trial, Eventually, I gave up and I gave her Wellbutrin, bupropion. So she was on a combination of lithium and bupropion, and she responded. And I thought, okay, maybe this is short term. Okay, uh, I kept her on the Wellbutrin, she kept getting better. And this was someone who was sick for two years, lost her job, everything, and, and got better and got in a relationship and got back to her job. And then I tried to, six months later, take away the Wellbutrin, she got worse. And so she was stable on this combination of lithium and bupropion. So I called Nasir, I didn't email him, I called him, I said, Nasir, here's the story. And he said, you know, in his same way, this philosophical way, he listens and he says to me, Muhammad, that should teach you something, that you should never accept dogma, even when it's mine. You know, so, uh, so uh, you know, uh, Nasir would be the first to say that these ideas are meant to push you. They should be frameworks. They don't explain everything, but I, I do think the framework helps a lot. And it's, it is not the same framework we hear in every textbook. I would highly encourage you, I know one of the doctors in Mubarak, uh, Dr. Adnan, had, has already bought his textbook and has been reading it. And it's, he says it's, it's amazing because coming from someone who works with pharma, who rails against pharma at the same time, and then actually being able to balance these views is, is very unique. Discussion, um, comments?
That's right. Thing they were defending. Yeah, yeah. wow. So so holding both views, accepting what we have but also questioning it. Yes. Yeah. At the same time, yeah. Yeah, we have ESM performance, like you say, like in their standards, and things that we should be using. As a shared language, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, right? But we have to be careful about only sticking to the yeah. ESM5 because people often don't stick to the ESM5 themselves, right? Yeah. People exist in spectrums. They don't come in with a ESM5 label on their website. So, yeah. And, and that's what happened with five, is they moved a little bit more towards spectrums, as opposed to, yeah. yeah. They, they, in fact, were one of the very few biological, or the only biological thing, right? anorexia, they put the periods, you know, the, as, a, as a criteria. Mm -hmm. So they're moving away from biology to more to something like clusters yeah. and then, you know, so, uh, so I absolutely agree with that. I, I mean, I like this disease modifying it's going to take time. Yeah. <laughs> As of today, yes, yeah, yeah. We don't have any. We don't have enough yeah. literature on, on any of these medications. Yeah. We're very young. In, we're very, very young. Yeah. We really are. Mm. And I think we're not even sure how to look at things. Mm -hmm. And so the hard job is looking at neurology or neuroimaging yeah. uh, studies. And I'm not sure if that's the only way to go in. That excludes a lot of the psychoanalytic theories and all of that. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, aspect. And I think that there needs to be a balance of something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. But uh, I, I, think I, I kind of he makes you think, that's the thing, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a reference, uh, Dr. Abdullah just referred to RDoC, and he referred to RDoC uh, a few times. So just for those of you in the audience who haven't heard of RDoC, it's a big, uh, uh, has everyone heard of RDoC? Just so I don't explain, are people, some people have not heard of RDoC? Yeah, so, so about half the audience. So RDoC stands for Research Domain Criteria, and it was proposed by the National Institute of Mental Health, which is a non-biased, I mean, it's basically, Wazara Tsaha al-Amerikiya has research arms, uh, called the National Institutes of Health, and then under it there's the National Institute of 
drug addiction and alcohol and drug addiction. There's the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute for, I think, cancer research and so on. So the National Institute of Mental Health was led by this visionary, I think, uh, Tom Insel, who actually, after he left there, he went to head Google Health. And then from Google Health, now he has a Silicon Valley startup that researches uh, mental health care as well. But when he was at um, the National Institute of Health, uh, uh, Mental Health as their leader, he came up with these criteria with his team called the Research Domain Criteria. And it was a way to structure psychiatric thinking and research in a non-DSM way. And it focused on a number of different domain criteria that, uh, that are spectrums that psychiatric disease would fit under. And so some of them were like uh, affective control and things like impulsivity. And so I don't remember all of them. Do you, do you know some of them? There are like five or six of them. But he, do you know, what were some of the other ones? Like there was impulsivity, there was, was anxiety one of them? I can't remember. Yeah, so like, or fearfulness or something. Like they came up with these more neuropsychiatric names. And then what they tried to do is, is put you on a spectrum of these different disorders and then put you, and that would guide the research more. And I remember for a few years while Tom Insel was very active at NMIH, there were these huge debates at the APA. APA was all about DSM-5 versus, versus um, RDOC. And I remember once attending when this first came out, a keynote talk where it was, you know, people were standing in the room, there was no sitting room, and it was basically Tom Insel against the whole room. And he stood his ground. He stood his ground and he was using uh, research uh, to back up what he was saying. So there's a lot of reference when Nasir says that DSM-5 doesn't work and uh, is that maybe RDOC could be, could be an alternative. When I asked him, is RDOC the alternative? He said it could, you know, but it needs some of these more clinical perspectives because it's very neuroscience-based without the clinical perspectives. So is it going to be something between RDOC and DSM and then includes, as you said, some cultural aspects? Who knows? Um, but definitely what we have today is not perfect. And then it's just going back to Dr. Ammar's point is, but it's what we have today. So I think the key lesson of this whole thing is we should work with what we have today, but accept that it's not the, the conclusion. Because unless we, unless we do that, unless we accept that it's not the conclusion and, and challenge it, we're never going to progress. We're just going to you know, come out kind of about if I don't. We're just going to keep doing it for. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at diabetes, type one diabetes, we're still using insulin for people. Yeah. What happened to stem cell research? Yeah. To creating artificial. Pancreatic islet cells. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How are we for time in the room? Do we need to wrap up? Okay. So thank you so much on behalf of the KPRC. Thank you for the invite, and thank you all for coming and stimulating the talk. And he's not on, but thanks uh, to Dr. Nassim. I mean, this guy is a really big deal. To give us 45 minutes of his time was very generous. So uh, I'll, I'll send the appreciation to him. And I'll, I'll let you know what he says about the podcast. I think he'll say yes, but I'll just ask his permission. Uh, because uh, Dr. Ibrahim wants to put it up on a podcast so people who aren't here could, could hear the discussion. So uh, he, thank you. Thank you.